Good morning and welcome as we continue our series known as Why We Do What We Do, which is a study through the book of Colossians, as Paul has been writing this letter to the church in Colossae while probably imprisoned in Rome. Today we're going to tackle suffering and gratitude, together at last, which doesn't really seem like two things that would go together, does it? Thank you, sir, may I have another, is a reference from Animal House, which comes to mind, but my guess is you might not have seen that film, so I'll spare you the exposition. But the reality is, human beings in general do what they can to steer clear of pain and suffering by any means necessary. Today, Paul is going to point out how hurting can be redeemed and even used for the glory of God. Paul has just got done explaining the beauty and the majesty of Jesus Christ and pointing out his preeminence, his supremacy, and his rank over the church. And now Paul is going to address where he, a mere mortal, stands and what he and we can do for the Lord as we have been saved unto something. So let's begin where we left off last week with verse 24 of Colossians chapter 1. Here's what Paul writes. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. At the beginning of this statement, he could easily lose most of us, because this isn't natural what he just said. I rejoice in what I am suffering. That alone isn't normal. In fact, in certain contexts, it could be seen as masochistic. But then he gives a reference for who he suffers for. For you, the believers in Colossae, these people that had just a few sentences before he was thanking God for in this specific letter. Suffering in general is not pleasant. In fact, it's the opposite of pleasant. But to suffer for someone, to have to be put out, to deal with pain on the account of or for someone else isn't something that we tend to want. Except it's what happens in childbirth. And the net result is worth it, I think. Moms, you probably know a lot more about this than I do. Parenting, though, is a lot of self-sacrifice so that our children can have and be prepared for life on their own one day. So I use that as just a reference of how sometimes suffering is well worth it. But the truest and most clear suffering for others is and will always be most prominent in Christ's suffering on the cross for men, women, and children to have access to God through the salvation that is secured for us in Jesus Christ. But let's look more at what Paul is saying specifically in verse 24. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. This verse can easily be misinterpreted, don't you think? Paul says he fills up in his flesh what is still lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions. What? I thought Jesus' death on the cross was sufficient. It is, and it will always be sufficient to make guilty people innocent in the eyes of the Lord. But what does Paul mean when he says this? For what we must read the rest of the verse and the verses that go after this, I have an interpretation that I want us to wrestle with. If we know that Christ's suffering was complete on the cross, if it is truly finished, as Jesus says before he gave up his spirit, then Paul must be pointing to something else. Speaking of the church, I can promise you that he is. He says, And I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. So I believe what Paul is pointing out is that even though Christ's sacrifice is complete, 
and it has secured our salvation. What is lacking or really has not been completed is our continued identifying with Christ's afflictions and how we get to the point out of God's sacrificial atonement through our continued afflictions in the world that shows other people how we have been identified with Christ through our response to our trials. This week, for me personally, it's been hard. We moved into our new house, which was amazing and was so fantastic to move in. And uh, our move literally took an hour and 46 minutes because we had everything set up and we had plenty of hands and we moved very safely and it was, it was a good time. But then once we moved into our house, there's still a bunch of construction that's going on in the house. So we've had to stay out of the house for a few different reasons, safety, but also getting out of the way of the people that are working on the house. So that means for us, a family of six currently, that means school at our, at, uh, our kids' grandparents' house. And we really don't feel at home when we're at home because there's still stuff we have to do in the house to get ready for the next day while construction takes place on the house. Plus, we're cleaning up our old house so we can get our deposit back. And, and as I say this, I got to just really be honest that this passage that we're studying this week is hard because when I think of Christ's afflictions being exposed through my own life, I'm in a season of life that has some pretty great things happening between the house and my wife being pregnant and the baby so far being very healthy. I'm excited about one day uh, in April when our baby is supposed to be born, but it is just a very sweet season for us. And I almost feel like I shouldn't be teaching this text or what probably many of us experience that we shouldn't have good things happen to us because Christ died and had to suffer. But I just have to say for those of us who think that way, get over yourself, brother and sister. Even though God allows us to go through trials, and this might be the most uh, uh, prosperity uh, that I ever talk about, he also allows us to go through seasons of prosperity. But hear me, the lesson in both is the same. It's what you do with that trial or with that gift that matters most. That's what we know as stewardship. Not just with the good, but how do we steward the difficult circumstances to point back to the Lord and his goodness. And just like trials are used to grow us, blessings and prosperity and gifts are used for the exact same purpose. We can become very, very entitled or act as if we were the ones who conjured up the abilities to do what we do. And in a culture that celebrates self-made people, it is a consistent fight to remember that the gift giver is the one who deserves the glory, not the gift user. Paul has a passion to share in or identify himself with Christ through affliction, through trial, and he does much of this at the detriment of himself so that others can hear and know the gospel of Jesus Christ. Self-sacrifice for the cause of the gospel is something that I think many of us appreciate when we hear about other people doing it, but it is also something very hard to embrace when we are focused on ourselves. Do we really believe the gospel if we're unwilling to suffer for it? I'm not talking necessarily about missions in a third world country, but maybe I am. But what I'm trying to point out is being willing to speak up with a friend you've had for years when you feel like the opportunity of sharing Christ with them has passed. What about pointing someone to the cross and resurrection of Christ when they're complaining about how messed up the world and politicians are currently? What about sharing the truth of the great exchange with that antagonistic family member you think will just ridicule you for your beliefs? 
our handling of, our identifying with, and our willingness to embrace suffering for the cause of Christ is all part of our sanctification process. So if we're going through difficulties or through an amazing season, both are used to sanctify us, but it's what we do with that that really shows where our lordship is landed if it's in Jesus Christ. He continues in verse 25, he says, I've become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. Paul then says he has become its servant. I contend he means the body, the church, by commission God gave Paul. To what? To present God and what he says in its fullness. So Paul suffers for the cause of Christ as an apostle and a minister of God's word who administers the word to those who will listen. And so he does this in fullness, which implies the effect on its hearers. I have the greatest job in the world. And I believe I could even say that in the hardest times I've had in ministry, as long as I kept my eyes focused on Christ and on his gospel rather than on myself and, if I'm honest, and my intolerance for pain. Paul kept his eyes on salvation that he was given, not one that he conjured up, not one that he secured, but the gift of salvation that was given to him through Jesus Christ. And you know how I know that? Because he served Christ in gratitude, not out of an expectation to earn. And I'll tell you what, gratitude not only is a much better motivation, but it is a much stronger catalyst for our service to Christ than earning will ever be. He continues in verse 26. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but now is disclosed to the Lord's people. The mystery of God has become what I would call almost the spiritual junk drawer for almost anything we don't understand. God's election and his predestination, ah, that must be the mystery of God. God's creation, ah, I don't totally get it, so it must be the mystery of God. But that isn't what Paul is using when, or talking about when he talks about the mystery of God as he is continuing this thought of the gospel. The word who is alive, removing the veil, making dead people alive through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a mystery that is even foolishness to those who are perishing. Paul writes to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For those who have had their, their eyes opened by God, that they did nothing to earn or attain their salvation, but they had it gifted and secured in Jesus Christ, this isn't a mystery. And yet many of us show how God revealed the beauty of the gospel to us by us not actually understanding why others can't see Jesus for who he is. The dress is blue. No, the dress is yellow. Listen, the reason people can't see the gospel and Jesus for who he is is because it's not natural to embrace grace. We think that if we are offered salvation, then there is a catch. And there is. See, salvation is free. Discipleship will cost you your life. And biblically, there is no differentiating between the two because if you have salvation, it means you're following Jesus Christ. It means that Jesus has called you to himself and you are now following him and he is master and Lord of your life. Jesus doesn't call us to get saved. Jesus calls us to follow him. 
And that following, while also being salvation, is a call to die and to be raised to life in Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 through 25, Jesus is speaking to the disciples and the crowds. And there are a bunch of people that have come to follow him because some think he's a magician. Some think he's done some amazing things. He's healed people of their infirmities. And now Jesus gets up and he calls what it means to be a follower of his. And spoiler alert, we won't read into all of it, but a lot of people actually walk away sad because they realize they can't do this and they don't want to do this. Here's what he says in Matthew 16, verses 24 through 25. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. And our following of Jesus has more to do with our dying to ourselves than it has to do with our working for him. Our losing of our lives, our giving up of our agenda is how we come into the kingdom of God, not with our heads held high as if we did anything to earn our status, but like a lowly beggar on his hands and knees, grateful that our status is secured in our Savior. If we don't embrace these facts about our inability to secure salvation on our own, we will always act as if God is lucky to have us on his team when it is actually completely the opposite. And for quite a long time, the nation of Israel believed that they were good because of their heritage rather than God's grace. And this has been kept hidden and unrealized by generations who thought they were good enough because of some external reason rather than an inward bowing down to the God of the universe. In verse 27, Paul continues and he says, To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul again points to what this mystery is, which is Christ in you. And when we identify with Jesus, we have to admit that we are not the point. We are not the point of our salvation. We are not the point of our abilities or even the point of our own lives because Jesus Christ is the point of all of that. And this is what not just for the Jew who was in the same bloodline as Jesus, but for the Gentile who didn't attempt to even keep the law which, to be honest, to the Jews blew their minds because they couldn't understand how God could give the Gentiles what they didn't deserve, which is, by definition, grace. And then in verse 28, Paul continues, and he says, He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. He being the Son, Jesus is the one that we proclaim. I'm not here to lift up my agenda or my political affiliation or my brand. Paul and I believe, and, and I'm with Paul when he says this, and I believe that every minister and follower of Jesus has a mandate to proclaim, to admonish, to teach with all wisdom found in God's word, written by God's spirit, personified in God's son, so that we can present people fully mature in Christ. If you've been a part of COV, Church of the Valley, for a season, you've tried to kind of figure out what makes this church unique, here's what I think we strive for to focus on, which might be the key to what you're trying to figure out. 
It's because we want to present people fully mature in Christ. That doesn't mean we read the Bible more than other churches. That doesn't mean that we have the greatest, most educated teachers come and teach. What that means is we, we focus on sanctification. We focus on this idea that God grows his people more into the likeness of his son. And it's why we do takeaways in our one-on-one discipleship, in community groups, and even as a phone call every week after the playlist or service so that we can talk about and actually process what we've learned so we can put into practice what God is teaching us. Because we want people to not be entertained. We want people to have an outlet to process what they have heard and be held accountable to put into practice what God says. In James chapter 1, verse 22, James, the half-brother of Jesus, writing to the church in Jerusalem, says it this way, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. And as someone who's been in ministry for almost two decades, I've noticed in ministry in many churches that I worked with or worked at that those in churches often would be inundated with information. They'd be taught different sermons, just like we do now, and you hear a different sermon every single week, and you hear it, you take some notes, you maybe say amen, you shut your Bibles, and you don't think again about what you learned that week. And what that truly does, if we're honest, if we're not putting into practice what we're learning, it hardens our heart. Because we hear truth, but, and we have this intake, but we have no exhaust. We exercise nothing of what we've learned. And so without the opportunity for application, many of us spiritually have these hardened hearts towards God and what he teaches. And we think that what he teaches doesn't really take effect because we're not actually putting into practice what he says. When I became a church planner, my dream was to experiment with what it would look like to still focus on good biblical teaching, but we also want to focus our attention just as much on applying God's word, obedience, and the opportunity for people to put into practice what God is teaching them. That's why we offer community groups that go over the sermon that we just heard, to give us community and accountability and opportunity to put into practice what we're learning. Because growth, it doesn't come out of our hearing. Growth comes out of our obeying for the right reasons. And that's one of the reasons in particular that we talk about what we talk about at this church. That's why we as a church have the statement that we've used many times. We say we want to grow into the likeness of Jesus by being doers of the word for the right reasons. Because motivation matters. And spiritual growth or Christ-likeness or maturity is our target. It's application and obedience and doing, which is the function, and for the right reasons, which is the motivation. Paul continues in verse 29, To this end I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. For this reason or for this goal, Paul strenuously contends as if Christ is contending for the faith through Paul. That is what God's Spirit can do in Christ's followers. We can be effective for the gospel, not because we're so good or so talented, but because we are willing vessels to be used for God's glory. Let me say that again. We can be effective for the gospel, not because we're so good, but because we're willing We're willing vessels for God's glory. Now we're going to jump into chapter 2, verse 1. 
Paul continues and he says, I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. Paul uses this contending again. He's talking about the church in Laodicea, which was miles off, but it was closer to Colossae where he was. And he had this passion and dream and love for these two churches. And Paul uses contending, which means to struggle as if to be in a contest, almost a foot race. And for those in Laodicea and Colossae, he wants these churches to hear and grow in the gospel of Christ. And so he puts in this effort and prayer and words to encourage even while imprisoned for the message of proclaiming that Jesus is Lord. Verse 2, my goal is that we may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that we may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that we may know the mystery of God, namely Christ. Paul's goal, the target for his effort, is that the church in Laodicea and Colossae would have hearts that are encouraged, that they would be united, they would have unity in love, so that they would have the, here's what he says, the full riches of, of complete understanding. And it almost seems as if the unity of love in the church and the full riches of understanding of the gospel go hand in hand. We need the church with all the wrinkles and all the cracks and all the difficulties that go along with being part of a community because that is God's will for his people, that we would be united in love while actually having to love one another by being in one another's lives and being refined and sanctified through one another in order that we may know the mystery of God, Paul says, namely Christ, personified in Christ, and the gospel of grace personified in the person and work of Jesus Christ is shielded from those who are self-reliant and self-fulfilled. As we have said before, many antagonists to the faith believe that Christianity is just a crutch, And real quick, it is, because those of us who know Christ know that our legs are broken without Christ, and we cannot walk on our own. And our unity and love for God's work and for God's people, and our unity and love is evidence of our understanding of the full riches of the gospel. If we can't love others who too have been redeemed, it actually points out the lack of redemption in us. Verse 3, in whom, being Jesus, are hidden in all the treasures and wisdom and knowledge. In whom, Jesus Christ, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are. Now, let me say this. Uh, Some of you may want to push back because you've been taught other things, but I'm going to say this, and as the lead pastor of the church, I get to If you disagree with this, you can go talk to the elders, and if the elders disagree with you, they can come talk to me. But let me make this clear. If your filter isn't the gospel of Christ, then you're reading this wrong. If you're not seeing Jesus on every single page, if you're not seeing the fact that God wants to redeem his people and draw people to himself, if you don't see that God is the catalyst and the initiator, the one who draws dead people and makes them alive, that we did nothing to make things okay on our own, but but God, if you don't see the gospel as your filter as you read this, you're reading this wrong. 
You want to be the best theologian you can ever be? Immerse yourself in the good news of Jesus Christ. The foundation of the gospel means more than the subject matter in theology. What I mean is a lot of times we're going to spend a bunch of time trying to figure out something. And what Paul is pointing out is there is this mystery that ultimately our foundation is found in grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And because of that, everything else starts to make sense. But for too many of us, we try to memorize the Bible. We try to learn more than just the gospel because we think the gospel is too simple. Verse 4. Paul says, I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. Paul's reasoning towards describing the personification of the mystery of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ is so that those who offer arguments of any and everything but him, but Jesus, can be defended. The simplicity of the gospel of saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, seems too simple for those whose hearts are hardened to this truth. And you know how your heart gets hardened? You ignore or disobey the truth of God. And see, a lot of these people may have ignored or argued against or even, re- even worse, replaced with some more complicated theory or conspiracy theory and wives' tale to attempt in their pride to figure out what others have not. This is why pride and the cross are in conflict, because the simpleness of the gospel is too easy for some, and it's too out there for others. But Paul, in the last two passages that we have studied, has built this airtight case that is all about Jesus, and Jesus is what it's all about. So today, we're going to conclude with some of the words that Paul uses as an encouragement to the church in Colossae. Here's what he says. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. Paul, who probably is in prison in Rome for preaching that the gospel is true, that Jesus is alive, that Jesus has defeated death, is absent from the Colossians as almost to apologize for his absence. He says this, I am with you in spirit. I am for you. I wish I was with you, not just because of the present circumstances that he's in that are dire, but as we began this letter, Because of this affection that he has for the church of the living God and the work that God is doing through those in Colossae. And his delight, his joy manifested is in how disciplined these believers are. Now, you might think of a specific thing when you hear discipline, and so I want to tease this out a little bit. When you hear discipline, you shouldn't think of some religious effort but of our lives being centered around Jesus Christ. How disciplined we are, not in habits or even in what we would call the spiritual disciplines, but really the why behind the what of centering our lives on Jesus Christ. When we wake up in the morning, are we not just quick to do our devotional to get it out of the way, but are we quick to thank God for the day at hand? See, to do the devotional at the beginning of your day, you might consider that putting Jesus first, but let's not put Jesus first. Let's make him center and central to all that we do because then we start to realize that that day that we get to wake up 
is a day that the Lord has gifted us to make much of him. When we do our routine of getting up is, and we have this time in his word, do we see it as vital and central to our spiritual well-being? Or has it become so routine that we do it just as just to do it, not because we want to, but because we feel like we have to? Does our attendance in church or uh, right now watching of the playlist become a chore that we feel obligated to do? Or is it a discipline that comes out of the joy because of our Lord offering us salvation in Jesus Christ? Does signing up for a community group and then actually attending that community group each week, is it a huge struggle for you? Like, oh, that's tonight. I guess I'll go. Yet all you had to do was turn on your computer. And yet every time you join that community group, every time you're a part of that community group, afterwards you're struck by how much you realize that you need community. All of those feelings that I just described, I felt. All of those feelings that I just described are natural. But as we are disciplined, the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit points us back to the gospel. Our minds and hearts are not arguing or conflicting with the truth of Jesus. We're not saying that, that he is enough, but I also need some other things. We're saying truly that he is enough, that he is supreme, and that he is what our faith is all about. I want to encourage you. I want to give you an opportunity and an option and point you out to something that if you feel stagnant in your faith or you're wondering what else you could be doing, Join the community group this holiday season. We're, we're stopping all our other community groups, but we're going to have one community group that's going to be led on Zoom by Karen Miller, our community group's director. And she's going to lead us through a discipleship training that I created and taught for years. It's called Compelled to Replicate. But what she will be doing is so invaluable because she's not going to be teaching it. She's going to be encouraging each of us to watch the video. But then she's going to lead us in a discussion where everyone can ask questions, where others can be uh, uh, flies on the wall to hear what other people have done and what they're doing. And it'll be an opportunity for people to share their experiences when it comes to discipleship and being invested in and investing in others. And I can't tell you how much being invested in or investing in others spiritually makes a difference in your spiritual maturity. We are not called to just get older spiritually but to allow God in his leading and our spirit-led obedience to coincide together as God grows us more into his son's likeness. So lastly, Paul ends this encouragement with, and how firm your faith in Christ is, which I believe is a testament to their understanding the person, purpose, and point of their faith in Jesus. Their firm standing was not just in believing in things without seeing them. Their firm standing was in a Lord who, as the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 13, verse 8, he is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And so, church, where has your heart been these past eight months in particular? Do you need to be reminded not only that God loves you, but our love for him back is not about what we do as much as it has to do with why we do what we do? God not only gave us our hearts, he guards our hearts, he sustains our hearts, but he also knows our hearts. And so what may seem like a good way to impress other Christians 
sometimes is in vain because our hearts aren't in doing what we're doing out of spirit-led obedience. So how can we today repent of going through the motions? Can we lay that at the Lord's feet and be honest with him and with ourselves when we aren't feeling it? But knowing that it pleases the Lord to live by faith, ask him to give us the faith to serve him in the hard seasons as well as the easier seasons. May we as a community of believers, God's redeemed sons and daughters, live lives that even when we suffer, we give God praise because it is through that suffering, through being unshaken by arguments that seem more complicated than the gospel, through gratitude of a Savior who stood in the gap for us and did for us what we could not do for ourselves, that any and all of us can be matured to look more like Jesus. I've shared before about in 2001, I came to faith. It was during a worship service. I felt like God put his arm around me, and I got this impression that he communicated to me that he's got me. And that was in 2001, and so I started to follow Jesus, and I became very zealous, and I became very bold, and I started telling everyone about Jesus. But then June 1st, 2008 happened, and my father passed away, and I got a phone call from a police officer in Arizona, and I found out that he had died. And in that moment, I was suffering. In that moment, I was angry at God because I had shared Christ with my father, and my dad had openly stiff-armed and rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so in that moment, I was pretty angry. I was pretty angry with what happened, what I believe happened to my dad because he wanted nothing to do with Jesus. I was pretty angry with God that I didn't get more opportunities to share with my dad. But as I went through that trial, as I went through that circumstance, boy, did God grow me. And in fact, I was working with Karen Miller at a former church, and I remember her and I were working, and we were talking about belief and repentance. And I remember that in 2001, I I think I started to believe, but honestly, it wasn't until 2008. It wasn't until my dad died. It wasn't until I really realized that I had nothing to do with my salvation, that I repented, that I changed direction, that I stopped going this way. And I went, God, I cannot do this in my own strength, in my own way. I need you. And I changed direction. I turned from sin that I was dealing with. I turned from the sin of pride. I turned from the sin of thinking that I could earn or even pay back my God for his salvation. And what was so amazing about going through that trial is that God redeemed it in me and gave me a new passion, a new zealousness, a new boldness, and even a new target to help individuals, men, women, and children, grow more to look like Jesus. So I'll finish with this. Our suffering and trials that we must experience because they're coming They identify us more and more with Christ than our comfort and pleasure will ever help us look more like him. I want to encourage you guys to, uh, if if you are part of Church of the Valley, this is an opportunity for you to give. You don't have to uh, come to the church and drop anything off. You can write a check, you can go, uh, you can mail it to the church or you can go to our website and you can give via the website. If you believe that God is using Church of the Valley, if you are part of this community, I'd encourage you to give, not because we need your money necessarily, but because we believe that this is an act of worship. This is a way that men, women, and children even can give back because we believe that God has given everything to us. 
And so again, you can mail that check if you choose to, or you can go to covalley.com uh, and go to give, and there is an opportunity for you to do that. I'm gonna pray for us. And before I do, I just wanna encourage you that I've given some applications between the community group that Karen's gonna be leading, the Zoom call that we do every week. As we've been meeting in person, the Zoom call has become less and less people. And that's one of the sweetest times. And so I just wanna encourage you, if you haven't been on that call in a while, 11.30, join us. Join us, even if you haven't watched the entire playlist. Maybe you just watched the sermon. And maybe you haven't even watched the sermon, but you wouldn't be hearing my invitation right now if that's true. I just encourage you to jump on the Zoom call. Pay attention to other people's takeaways, because a lot of times someone else's takeaway is what really sticks with us. I know that's happened multiple times with people in our community. So would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for this time, and I thank you for your gospel. I thank you that the good news is something that we can be secure in, and that is something that we don't need to graduate from. And Lord, I pray for the offering of those that you lead to give towards your mission at Church of the Valley. I pray, God, that you would use the money through the elders and the people that uh, are stewarding that money for the glory of your name. And I pray that more disciples, more men, women, and children would come to look more like you and grow to look more like Jesus because of the resources that you're going to allow us to steward and the giving of your people. We thank you for this time and we thank you for your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.